You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. When we fixate on a certain story in the media, the details of this one murder, what are we actually talking about? The systems of power, who has power, who gets to control the narrative, how does race play into it? It very often does. How does gender play into it? It very often does. In this episode, author and Pulitzer Prize finalist Rebecca Mackay speaks with Rachel Brown about Rebecca's latest book, I Have Some Questions For You, part campus novel, part true crime podcast investigation, all told through the lens of the Me Too era. Welcome, everyone. I would like to acknowledge that we're meeting today on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners of the land on which this event is taking place, and acknowledge any First Nations people with us today. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I'm very excited to be moderating this event with Rebecca Mackay for the Wheeler Centre. And the Centre is proud to be working with RMIT Culture to present this event at the Capitol as part of Spring Fling, supported by the Victorian State Government through Creative Victoria and the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund. Bit about me quickly, I'm Rachel Brown. I've been working at the ABC for the past 21 years but most recently in the investigative journalism podcast space. So Rebecca Mackay's novel is very much in my wheelhouse. I created the podcast Trace. Uh, The first series revisited the 1980 cold case of Maria James and sparked a new coronial inquiry. And the second series looked into Melbourne's lawyer ex, Nicola Gobbo, the defence barrister for many of Melbourne's prominent gangland players, but who was also working secretly as a police informant. So I'm delighted to introduce to you Rebecca Mackay. She lives outside Chicago with her husband and two daughters and is the author of five works of fiction. One, The Great Believers, is set at the height of the AIDS epidemic. That was a finalist for the 2019 Pulitzer Prize. This one that we're all here to talk about follows a protagonist, Bodie Kane, a successful professor and podcaster, who's invited back to teach a course at her old boarding school, Granby, in New Hampshire. And it was at Granby where her roommate, Thalia Keith, was murdered and the school's athletic trainer, Omar Evans, was convicted for it. But did police get the right guy? I'd like to introduce to you Rebecca Mackay. Thank you. Uh, we're very lucky to have you here today. Um, I absolutely loved the book for Thank reasons you. we'll get into. The, it plays around a lot with the idea of power and imbalances and shifts in power within the mediums of gender politics, age, class, race, and within institutions like the legal fraternity and academia. And I'll touch on all these themes because structurally I was amazed how you wove them all together. But let's start with abuses of power. What were you keen to convey in terms of the range of abuses that and assaults that women face? Yeah, you know, I was... I don't tend to go into a novel with a certain thesis statement or a certain thing that I want to say, um, but I definitely go in with things I want to examine, right? Questions that I have, questions that I... Rather than solving them, I actually just want to complicate them, Um And these were things that were on my mind. Uh, I was writing this book starting, 
I, I, I tend to think about a book for about a year before I write anything. So thinking about it in 2018, um, which is right when Me Too stuff was getting started, uh, and I just thought I'm going to write a book about someone looking back on boarding school. Um, and, you know, there'll be, a, you know, there's this murder. It'll be a, a good story. Every time I start a book, I think this is going to be the fun, easy one that I'm going to write this time. <laughs> there's no uh, such thing. <laughs> no, I know. Um, and, you know, but, but, you know, all those questions that I had about Me Too, all the looking back that we were all doing on big things as well as little things, um, and individual things as well as systemic things, that, you know, and, and it wasn't simple answers. Uh, there were cases where you go, oh, but that one's different. Oh, but that ooh, that one go, does that go too far? I don't, I don't know. Um, I I wanted to look at all that stuff directly. Um, so, um, yeah, I you know I essentially this always happens to me. You know, I try to I try to tell the simple, nice, fun story, and I try to write about just one thing, and it ends up being about seventeen things. And it also ends up being, um, you know, much, uh, much more resonant, maybe, I hope, than I had intended. You know, I, I just want to tell the one story and I end up writing about broad thematic things that um, kind of came about subconsciously. So right. I'm not, I'm, I'm almost yeah. not answering your question, but, uh, but I, 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 in the end, I really do want the book, and I think it does, um, to ask about, you know, when we fixate on a certain story in the media, right? Like, oh, this one lurid, uh, the details of this one murder. What are we actually talking about mm. in terms of um, the systems of power? Who has power? Who gets to control the narrative? Um, how does race play into it? It very often does. How does gender play into it? It very often does. Um whose stories get sensationalized, whose stories capture the public attention, whose don't. And I wanted to look at the exact kind of case that would become clickbait, right? Young, beautiful, wealthy girl, boarding school. And I wanted to look at it through a, a realist lens. Um, what are we actually talking about? How would this really play out um, for the people involved and not just for the casual consumer? I might get you to read a section of it because there's a very um, – well, hands up firstly, who's read the book so far? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Great. Thank really you, guys. Here. Oh, my God. Well, you'll all know there's a very clever – We'll be careful with spoilers, though, because that wasn't everybody. <laughs> very clever stylistic device that Rebecca employs of chapters um, peppered through of cases of murder and abuse that people remember only in snippets, So, which is what you were just talking to. Yeah. I'll just get you to read the first bit of it. Fantastic. Yeah, okay. So I'm reading uh, here and here. Okay. Correct. Sometimes they know her right away. Sometimes they ask, wasn't that the one where the guy kept her in the basement? No, no, it was not. Wasn't it the one where she was stabbed in? No. The one where she w got in a cab with different girl. The one where she went to the frat party. The one where he used a stick. The one where he used a hammer. The one where she picked him up from rehab and he, no. The one where he'd been watching her jog every day? The one where she made the mistake of telling him her period was late? The one with the uncle? Wait, the other one with the uncle? No, it was the one with the swimming pool. 
the one with the alcohol in, with her hair around, with the guy who confessed to write, yes. The one from the boarding school, they say. I remember the one from the video. You knew her? Thank you. Sure. In this book, the, the cumulative effect is devastating. Uh, in Australia, one woman a week uh, is killed by their current or former partner. In America, it's much worse. I think it's three women a day. Good Lord. Now, these lists of atrocities, what, what gave you this idea? And, and I mean, you touched on it earlier, but what mm-hmm. were you hoping to achieve? Yeah, so there are these lists, right, that, that kind of go throughout the book and that they change through the book what they are. Um, so I'll tell you first how it came about, because it came about as a response to um, a problem I was facing. I, I have this character She's 40. I'm putting her back, you know, at her boarding school. So she's going to be pulled back between the successful adult she is and the kid she was. But I need other ways, too, to destabilize her. And so I really wanted for there to be a story in the news, something that people would be obsessed with for days. Um, This was coming shortly after in the U.S., um, the Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, this woman testifying about assault on on TV all day, everyone's watching it, and then nothing happens, and we're all just going out of our minds. I wanted something like that to be throwing her off. My problem was I didn't want to talk about a real case like that, which is going to just steer the book in this one specific direction. And I didn't want to invent something because then I'd have to invent all the details of it and it would take away from the details of the other story I'm inventing, which is my main plot. Um, So I had this scene where I wanted her to be watching TV, watching the news. And my way through this conundrum was to say, okay, what if she refuses to tell us which one it is because it's all of them. It doesn't even matter. It's all of them. And she's just going to list them all. So I wrote that scene, and I liked it a lot. Um, it echoed for me this idea of the litanies, I think, those lists we all have of certain types of case, certain types of story. So, you know, violence against women is definitely one. In the U.S., uh, mass shootings and police brutality are two others where, you know, you hear a new story and you're like, oh, it's one of those. or You know, there are ones you remember and ones you don't remember. Um, and it just is this cascade. I liked that effect, but you can't just do something like that once. So then I had to weave it throughout, um, but uh, in- including opening the book with it. Uh, but that sense of, okay, this is one of these stories that you have heard of. You're complicit in this. We're all complicit in this. Even though it's fiction, we're going to pretend that it's not. And um, not only are you complicit, but you know we're all part of this kind of uh, overload, this deluge. And you stop, real. You you can forget that these are individual people, that these are individual cases. When it becomes more just this cultural phenomenon, mm-hmm. and it touches on cancel culture as well. Uh, Bodhi's husband is publicly accused of predatory behaviour in a relationship with a younger woman. And I found it really interesting how you played out this event with her memories of her relationship with the teacher, Mr. Block, mm-hmm. and their relationship she initially um, remembers as pure, but her husband's accuser, she thinks, is, you know, using and weaponizing a victim narrative to gain attention mm-hmm. and status. 
So I was wondering, how is the prism of today's post-Me Too movement, along with social media, shaping how public opinion forms and evolves when yeah. alleged crimes are made public? Well, I think one of, one of the things I really was dealing with there that I was interested in was the way um, we've lost a bit of a sense of nuance or of, of we've lost the ability to be comfortable, I think, with contradiction um, in that regard. And mostly, I mean, I, I think this has mostly been a tremendously good thing, all of this um, coming out with these stories, talking about this, holding people accountable. Um, but it's not without conflict. It's not without contradiction. And that's not the kind of conversation you can have online very easily, right? The, the case where you go, oh, that, that goes too far. I'm not going to come out and say that on Twitter. Oh my God. And, um, but you kind of say to a friend like, well, but is that the same? I don't, uh, you don't want to betray the cause, but you also don't want to dilute the cause, right? Um, so that um, that was something that I, I really wanted to, uh, you know, look directly at, address, mess with, think about. I also, you know, didn't want to be beating the reader over the head with, here's a book about all these men who all did bad things and can try to hold them accountable. Um, I wanted there to be plenty of good men in the book, and I wanted there to be maybe that contradiction of, well, you know, to, what is accountability? Are we the same people that we were? Um, what if the world changes? What if the times change? Uh, how does that work? You, this this um, novel is a really intense look at true crime and where we're at with it. And so these questions, selfishly, I most wanted to ask you. Um, this is my wheelhouse and I get asked yeah. this a lot and I wonder what your take on it is. But why do you think audiences find true crime content so interesting and, and so therapeutic? Because I'm never able to answer that question. Yeah, okay. I've, I've been asked this a lot too, so I have an answer. I Actually, I have a theory. Um, because we know this is as old as humanity, right? This is, we have a lot more ways to, you know, in the modern age, you can spend all day doing a deep dive about something, whereas before you'd have to wait for the paper. Um, But my theory is that it's evolutionary. I think that for most of human history, we're traveling these packs of, you know, 150 people going around. And if your friend is dead, you probably want to figure out what happened, you know, like, is someone else here to blame and you need to kick them out? Or did he eat the berries from that bush that he's lying under and you should be sure that you never do that? Um, that it, it's integral to survival, right? You have this kind of this instinct to kick in of like, I have to figure out, I have to solve this. Um, especially I think for women, because there's that self-protective, mm. how do I keep this from happening? Maybe if I figure out exactly what happened, I can keep it from happening to me. Um, so I, I think that's what it is. And I think that just, you know, then now, instead of knowing 142 other people in your life, you have access to 7 billion people's stories if they're juicy enough, um, which is probably not, not the healthiest, right? Um, it's also, you know, I think just, you know, people love a mystery. Who doesn't love a mystery? Um, and I think the kind of mystery with true crime, you know, it's one thing, you read an Agatha Christie novel, and there's only, you know, you can either figure out the clues or you can't, but the book's the book. Uh, with true crime, maybe there's that little, there's that one 
you know, that 0.00001% chance that you could notice something, you could post something and the right person could see it, mm. um, that, that's very alluring. And there's, there's just also, you know, kind of the rubbernecking of, of what happened. But I, I, I am very drawn to certain stories like that, certain ones I'm absolutely not drawn to. Um, but where there's mystery involved, especially, I tend to be I tend to be very drawn to it, and then I tend to really question why and and wonder whether, you know, um, obviously in cases like what you've been doing, there's tremendous good that can come out mm-hmm. of this kind of attention. There's also tremendous harm that can come out of irresponsible um, uses of this kind of media, where people, you know re-victimize families or harass suspects or tromp all over the crime scene. Um, it, it's, it can be both of those things as a, as a genre. Mm. I read a, a really interesting article recently by author Bree Lee who said this about crime, true crime, and I wanted to read it to everyone. Everyone who engages with true crime has some kind of conflict of interest. Mm. No one arrives at the material with totally clean hands and altruistic intentions. Now, that set me off on days of soul-searching about my work and whether I should still be doing it. Um, But with Trace, I do think I did arrive at it with clean hands because my purpose was trying to find uh, answers for the James brothers, the the sons of the the, Mm. um, victim, Maria James. Um, So I do think it it might be rare, but I do think it's possible that content makers can come at true crime with clean Uh, hands. But I was curious to hear your take on it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, I think, you know, Something that the proliferation of true crime media has allowed, um, you know, it, it has allowed for the highlighting of more marginalized victims, mm-hmm. um, just stories that weren't going to make it onto TV. They're not telegenic enough. They're not splashy enough. It's also allowed for cold cases to be reexamined, um, where police departments don't have the resources or the energy. They don't want to go and unsolve their own cases, um, but so many cold cases now that the technology has changed can be solved or people can be exonerated. Um, the innocence project work going on in so many of these cases, which is of course something I got very interested in with this book. Um, there's, you know, and, and just things like, you know, um, podcasts where they go, okay, you know, this is a cold case from 1972. If you lived in Hawaii in 1972, we're going to throw up these pictures online of this Jane Doe, see if you know anything. Mm. That's not something that was possible in 1972, particularly. Um, so there, yeah, I think there can be there, you know, I'm, I'm a defender of the responsible vein of mm. this stuff. Definitely. Perfect segue. Thank you. Um, <laughs> because I want to, in terms of audiences, um, an article in the New Yorker recently spoke to the gamification of true crime, saying the internet has added a new dimension to the persistent fashion fascination with crime stories. It has made the genre participatory. Mm-hmm. Now I saw that element, um, perhaps naively when I did mine as groundbreaking because for the reasons you were saying that, you know, I could um, invite new leads that could help me alert, alert me to avenues that perhaps yeah. law enforcement couldn't or wouldn't investigate and it, it ended up sparking a new coronial inquest but I have seen the other side uh, where public participation can be problematic. Yeah. Have you, what kind of cases have you seen where it's... Well, yeah, well, there was the one in England uh, last year where a woman just kind of went missing by a creek and I mean, her phone was found there on the bench and her dog and people just 
walked all over this, you know, like any footprints that were there are long gone now. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there was a, I was really interested in researching the book. I was interested in kind of high school based cases. Um, and what happens years later to these people. Um, there was one, a case in Ohio where it's, this young woman was killed in her boyfriend's backyard. And it's pretty clear that either her boyfriend or this really creepy guy at their school did it. Neither of them was ever imprisoned. Both of them were suspects. And obviously one of them is innocent. You just don't know which one, Mm. but they've both been harassed. Um, one of them died, uh, quite young, I think as a result of some of, you know, drinking related to this. Um, and you know, that was, that happened in 1991 maybe. And so, you know, there was this moment and then it died out. And now the past, you know, 10 years, these people who are now adults, you know, living their lives, one of them is innocent, at least one of them is innocent, are now getting harassed. And, you know, 50% of people think it's one guy, 50% the other, and they're not going to leave them alone. Do you you have a theory? I don't. It's such a complicated, oh my God. Yeah. Okay. If if you're interested, it's um, Lisa Pruitt in Shaker Heights, Ohio. It's It's like you'll spend... All weekend no, is the problem. I'm having a breather. <laughs> um, the ending of this book um, it broke me. To be fair, it hit very, <clears throat> it hit very close to home. Mm. Um, in my kind of work, I'm all too familiar with injustice because certain people or certain institutions didn't do their job properly or just didn't care enough. So I want to read you all um, a section, and this is at the end of the book. And this would be a spoiler, but I think you've all read it, so. Not everyone, but we'll still, <laughs> even, I mean, unless it literally says, and here's what happened. No. No, okay, there so. we go. <laughs> I don't think so. Stop me. I think we're still like... okay. You can also plug your ears if you really need to. <laughs> <laughs> you got to, okay. at least. Jeff said, the fucker's going to get away with it. Even if Omar got off, they're never going after Sereno. I don't see it. Yeah, I've said so too on the phone. There's no case against him. I said, well, there was no case against Omar either. Yes, well. (laughs) Fran was the one who showed me the video online from that morning. Amy marched outside the state prison, her face exhausted, but her eyes fierce. She said, the victory we've achieved is that Omar knows there are so many people who believe him. He told me that's what he's thankful for. The growing number of people who understand his innocence, who will continue to fight for his freedom. He's ready for the battle ahead. Mm. Now, this novel asks if the conviction of the athletic trainer, Omar Evans, was fair. Do you, do you see a lot of this, of class and privilege, affecting investigations and influencing convictions? Yeah, yeah. I, so, you know, I went into this, like I said, I... And that, the great thing is there really weren't spoilers there because you didn't actually... So that was, that, was good, that was good. It was well done. Um, uh, I went into this wanting, like I said, a really realist lens, right? I did not want the, you know, TV drama, you know, it's all wrapped up. The person confesses on the stand. Oh my God, here's the evidence version. Um, and the, the more I dug in on the realities of what was possible, what was likely, um, 
the more frustrating and horrifying it got, of course, right? Um, I was working closely with a public defender from the state of New Hampshire because um, I needed, you know, those very specific laws, and she was amazing. Um, I originally really wanted, I thought, like, oh, it'll be a retrial. And then the more I dug, like, oh, just even to get to a retrial, mm. what are the steps you have to go through? And, you know, ultimately landed on maybe there's, and not a huge spoiler, don't worry, but, like, is there, like, a hearing for a retrial instead? Um, and I asked this this lawyer um i said you know what are the you know like what are what's what is the likely outcomes what are and she was like well in the state of new hampshire in the past 50 years there's been one person who won their hearing for a retrial and she's one. like and, and she's she was the one who did it yeah um i, I was like, oh okay so this is i mean mm. the, the stuff you see on tv it's just not it's not real. Yeah. And, you know, the more, you know, of course, race is a huge factor. Um, black men in the U.S., and I'm sure elsewhere, are disproportionately among those eventually exonerated, so we can extrapolate, you know, disproportionately among those falsely imprisoned. Um, there are also major economic factors in who can afford what kind of defense and in this case, I was also interested in what happens when a, a very wealthy institution, like a school, um, is putting pressure on, you know, New Hampshire is a tiny state and it's actually very poor. So you have, but you have a number of incredibly wealthy universities and boarding schools um, that could practically buy the rest of the state. So what does that ba balance do? Mm. And also institutions and like police forces and courts don't like undoing their own mistakes, do they? I'm sorry, say that again? Certain institutions like police forces and courts don't like unpicking their own oh, mistakes. Oh, yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the last thing they want, um, let alone the last thing they want to spend time and money on. Uh, right. Those are your numbers. Someone, Someone's always up for re-election, some judge, some sheriff. Mm. And, you know, is the thing that you want a month before the election, oh, you know, we just unsolved a case. Great. Yeah. It raises this, this novel very um, interesting ideas on memory, both personal memory and collective memory. Um, it's, it's something you played around with really cleverly. You have this great line, for a teenager, being seen as a certain way is as good as being that way. And soon your vision becomes part of my self-image. Do you think after having done this, is it ever possible to see yourself clearly as a, as a younger person? Oh, God. Ah, that's a great question. Mm, no, um, definitely not. I don't think it's ever possible to see yourself clearly at any age, mm. right? Um, I mean, it's, it's so funny because fundamentally, I think when you're an adolescent, that's, you're the you know, it's one of the least self-aware times for anyone. It's also the time when you're trying on multiple different personalities um, and you really don't fully understand the effect you have on other people. At the same time, who you were, how you saw yourself as an adolescent informs the rest of your life profoundly. It takes up so much more room in our memories, in our uh, conception of self than other periods of your life do, right? Mm. The period from like 13 to 18 or so compared to say your 20s. Um, you might 
remember, you know, you usually remember more from that time. You remember music better, all that stuff, but you also just, you know, you were unpopular for one year of high school and that informs your life forever. You just see yourself that way forever. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it's something I was thinking a lot about, not only thinking back in that me too sense, um, but just going, okay, I'm going to invite myself to really think back on who I was at this time in my life. Um, it's funny because one of, one of the questions I get very often is, well, why did you go with the, you know, the, the common trope of making her such an outsider? It's like, who the hell was not an outsider? No, she was at in that a age? Like, very privileged institution. Well, yeah, yeah, right. And, and I mean, you know, raise your hand if you considered yourself an insider as a teenager. My God, who, like, yeah. who would that even be? Um, and, and she, you know, she was in some, in some fundamental ways and in others she was not. And one of the major things she needs to realize over the course of the book is to what an extent she, she was a part of these systems, um, that she felt like she was, you know, stepped on, um, and, and to some extent was, by these systems of privilege and power, she was also very much a part of the systems of privilege and power. Mm. I, I'll jump to that because this is a bit that I, I liked that I sometimes disliked her <laughs> um, because it, there's times she's not honest mm -hmm. with herself about how much she wanted the podcast to be out there. Um, Mr. Block's attention seemed to me fine when it was directed at her, yet not when it was directed at Thalia, which mm -hmm. I found really interesting. Mm -hmm. And she, as you mentioned, constantly cast herself as, as an outsider, yet she, she was part of this Granby institution. Yeah. Um, how important do you think her story is to have flawed and I would argue um, sometimes hypocritical narrators? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it would be wildly dishonest to try to come up with a protagonist who's unflawed, first of all. Also, we wouldn't like them. You know, if you yeah. met someone in real life who was Too perfect, perfect yeah. wouldn't even like them. Yeah, um, yeah and, and I'm just not that interested in it. I'm interested in, um, you know, I, I don't write characters who are very much like me um, for the most part. Um, she has definitely, Bodhi has some things in common with me. I gave her my high school graduation year, um, you know, aligned myself with her generationally and, you know, a few other things, but, um, she's definitely not me, but, um, I like to kind of, you know, when you write a character, you sort of tap into some weird corner of yourself and, uh, hopefully a, a weird, you know, an interesting corner of yourself, one that, um, is in conflict with the rest of you. Um, and, and, you know, you kind of take that, like maybe that grain of what is this about myself? I don't really like this about myself and then blow it up very large and put it there in that character and, and see what it can do on its own. I have fun with that. And yeah, well, I've read that stories, um, and books that kind of disturb you, um, and unsettle you in some way. You, you like reading books like that, so I'm guessing you were trying to unsettle. Readers. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. right. I, you want something with some, uh, some meat. Yeah, some mm. right, some meat or just some some like counterbalance. Some right. Um, it's like you know you're eating a meal and you want acid in there. Um, you don't just want all all sugar and fat all the time, right? Like some salt, some acid. Um, and yeah, I love particularly narratives that where the narrative itself unsettles me meaning uh it breaks its own rules um you know where 
we're not just going along in one mode. Um, it turns out that we've been tricked in some way or that, you know, suddenly we're changing to another perspective when I didn't expect it. Mm. Um, I'm not, you know, trying to take people for a roller coaster ride that way, but I, I have fun messing a little bit with the reader and myself. I like to, I want to mess with myself. The um the narrative style of this book is so interesting because it's a kind of a marriage of numerous literary devices, which in another person's hands could have been a complete mess. But <laughs> I thought your command of them was excellent, and it really makes the novel sing. Um, as readers of the book would know, there are switches in time. There's Bodhi's imagining um, of alternate versions of Thalia's death. And you sometimes also write in second person, which drives some of the mystery, which Mm -hmm. I loved. Um, I might read you all an example of that now. Mm. I wasn't furious with you yet. That would come later. For now, you were simply an audience. Don't be flattered. I didn't understand yet that I was there on your tail, that I wanted answers from you, on your trail, sorry, that I wanted answers from you. But the subconscious has a funny way of working things out. The, the, the structural differences in the texture, did that come naturally when you were writing it or did you to, to work with all the themes that, you, um, that you've spoken about in this talk that, that was the only way to, to weave them all together? Yeah. Um, essentially, you know, I, I, in the early phases of writing, there's a lot of, you know, just throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. And... Um, I, you know, you try way too many things. There's no way you would include those all. Uh, and also some of them simply don't work. Uh, the ones that do, you know, like you like and you go, okay, is this, I like it. Is it serving the whole story? Can I really go somewhere with this? Um, uh, let's see what happens. So, you know, I have those lists for one thing. I talked about how mm. those came about. The second person was really that... Um, I just, you know, I was I was writing, and at the end of the first full chapter, I just kind of found myself pivoting to the second person and going, okay, what if she's talking to this guy? Um, just kind of wrote it, and then went, ah, I really, I don't know, I like it. We'll see, what, we'll see what we could do with that. Um, uh, it, you know, and then you start thinking, okay, what does this do within the text? Well, it kind of it implicates the reader a little bit more because you see that word "you" on the page, and it's not you, but you also means you, right? Do I like that? Do I not like that? I I think I like it. Um, Other things, uh, you know, I, right there, there, uh, there's a lot of trial and error. So there are these sections throughout where um, Bodhi starts with imagining, okay, here is the official version of events. Can I really picture this scenario where this athletic trainer murdered this girl and and here's what happened and tries to think her way through it. And then uh, subsequent ones, right? It's like, well, no, okay, what if it was actually this person? Um, Originally, those were all together in one big clump in the middle of the book between the 2018 section and the 2022 section. And my idea there was, okay, you've read through... Um, her return to campus, and now you're going to start reading. You're not even going to know what you're reading. You're going to start reading, and it looks like this is the real version of events. But then I'm going to go, ah, never mind, maybe it was this, right? Um, If you guys ever... The movie Clue from like the 1980s. The, I loved that. Okay, movie, yeah. And it, the, the way that it came out on like VHS when I was a kid was we got to the end and it was like 
that ends this like, well, that's how it, maybe how it happened, or maybe it happened like this. Mm. Um, I didn't recognize the influence as I was doing this, but in retrospect, <laughs> I was trying to write Clue. Um, when it did not work. Clue works very well. This did not work here. Um, but those, those just weighed this book down in the middle. It was like hanging a huge weight in the mm. middle of a clothesline. My editor wanted me to cut them completely originally. Um, and I, I, did not feel like that was the answer. I really, I, I wanted those there. I wanted us to walk through these scenarios so that in the end, and I'm being cryptic, when we do really basically know what happened, we have a reference point for how that might have gone down mm. from earlier, right? Um, so it, it's, it's like, oh, okay, that part couldn't have happened, but this part, yeah, this might be what happened. Um, so, you know, then my solution is to thread them throughout. It was good peppered through because it was also reminiscent of like Reddit or blogs or posts when, right. when everyone jumps on about a podcast and says, oh, what about this? And right. this might have happened. And, right, um, yeah. That I want to throw to some questions from the audience. We've got about 10 minutes to go. So ushers will be walking around with some microphones. Um, and we'll try to be pretty spoiler free. Yeah. So if you guys don't mind, we can be cryptic if you want. Um, does anyone have a question for Rebecca? And, and also I should say Susie and Rebecca will be signing books after, so you, you'll have another opportunity to maybe ask them some, yeah. some quick questions. But if you've got a question for Rebecca or Susie at the front, I could get a microphone if you've got a question for either women. It always takes one person to ask. Oh, oh yes, Susie. Amazing. <laughs> Yeah. So for people that didn't hear that, Susie Miller asked if, if true crime is, is the new gossip and the way that we um, communicate now and it has become part of our village. Yeah, I think very much, right. Um, I think gossip is also evolutionary. I really do. I taught elementary school for 12 years before my first book came out. And um, you might think I'm about to talk about the kids, but I'm going to talk about the <laughs> parents. <laughs> the parents yeah. would like... You know, the, like these rumors, like parking lot gossip and like, and you, you had to be constantly on guard of like, how did this rumor get started? What is going on? Um, I think that's it, why Big Little Lies worked. So yes, well. totally. Yeah. It's yeah. very recognizable. Um, but it ha I think there were just always within that group, there were just always a few self-appointed people who felt like they were just going to warn everybody of anything that might have been slightly amiss or make sure everybody knew everything. Um, and you think, okay, like what purpose did that serve for most of human history? Well, yeah, like the person who's kind of like standing up, looking out over the savanna or whatever, being like, I think that's a leopard. Everybody be careful. I think that's a leopard. Right? Is that, right? Just, just you need those people um, who are, speculating who are letting everyone know what they think um i think maybe i don't know and and also um you know then as we come down to like well what happened to this person this person has been killed um you need the people who are going to get over involved who are going to speculate who are going to figure it out um yeah i but yeah it's i mean it, here's the thing it can be really fun right the um we just had in the U.S. that um, there's this elaborate case in South Carolina with this very wealthy family, um, basically a father who seems like he killed his wife and son. But um, just the uh, the number of podcasts and the number of I think there were there was an HBO special and a documentary series and a Netflix one I think, and the gossip around it was 
so fun. I can admit that. Um, it was just so wild. It was so juicy. Um, and this guy messed up hugely. And this is, this was the most satisfying, like they got him in court with a surprise piece of evidence and right. it was absolutely amazing. But yeah, it's, the, it scratches that gossip itch. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any other questions? Yeah. I can see your hand there. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much. Um, I think what I have to ask is kind of a little bit of like a non-question, perhaps a little bit more of an observation. Um, but I have noticed there have been a few titles published this year that have obviously done something similar, but also different to what you've done in like following a bit of a similar idea around there's a murder that takes place a few decades ago. They all mm -hmm. seem to fall in the 90s. Um, and then, you know, it's the modern, the, the present day and someone who was involved in, in the periphery finds themselves going back to their hometown to sort of try and, and reckon with that. Um, I've read one or two of those and they were fine. Um, your book is marvellous. <laughs> Thank um, you. But I guess I was just sort of like interested in terms of some of those, huh. I guess, things that maybe happen in in publishing, they all seem to kind of get released a little bit like around the same time. And if that was something, like to what extent that was something in your awareness, not whilst you're writing it, but right. when it comes out and you sort of look around, you're a little right. bit like, oh, yeah, this is, this is sort of interesting. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think a lot of those are in maybe a little bit more of a real mystery genre than what I write and, and then what I read. Um, I, I love a good mystery, but it just doesn't tend to be the, the book that I would pick up and it's not, um, the world I'm kind of steeped in. Um, so it's not, I, I actually have not been looking around going, oh gosh, everyone's doing the same thing. Um, but I do think that there is, you know, there are just things in the zeitgeist. I don't think that it's necessarily about the publishing industry, but, you know, do, uh, you know, in this moment when we're thinking about Me Too, um, in this moment when true crime is having us think back on unsolved cases, wrongly solved cases, um, would people be, you know, especially, you know, people around my age, I'm in my 40s, high school was the 90s. Um, can you see, you know, several people um, wanting to write about that? It makes a lot of sense. The other one is books about podcasting. And, you know, when I started this, I certainly hadn't, don't think there were really, I mean, the first podcast anyone listened to was in like 2014, right? Mm. Um, and I started writing this in 2018. There were not books about podcasters. Um, and and there have been a bunch now. Um uh, specifically true crime podcasting. And again, it, it, you know, it makes sense as in the zeitgeist. Also, um, I think it, it hands us a really plausible and likely, um, citizen detective that someone like Agatha Christie would have killed for, maybe literally. Um, right. But she, you know, she's got to come up with like Miss Marple for her citizen detective who just always happens to be there. Um, Whereas, a, you know, you, you get someone like a true crime podcaster, that is an actual thing. Um, people are, you know, they're not detectives, they're not police, they're investigating, they sometimes get things solved. This is a, a great gift to the mystery novel genre on the whole. Um, so it makes sense. But it's, it's funny to me, because of course, you know, 
this being the length and the depth that it is, this book takes me, you know, four years to write and another year to come out. And some of the true crime podcast or novels are the kind, which is, I think this is great, but they're the kind that, you know, someone writes a book a year um, very quickly. And so by the time it comes out, once I'll get the question of like, why did you decide to jump on the bandwagon of like, oh, come on. (laughs) I was was writing this the whole time. (laughs) Um, We've probably got time for one more if anyone else has a question. Just a quick question. I loved your book, reading your book this year. I was wondering what books you've loved reading this year. Ooh. Do you have time? <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I do, I do. Um, that's a great question. Um, I'm doing a project right now where I'm trying to read my way around the globe in translation. Um, so it's partly, it's a memorial to my father. He was a linguist and a literary translator as well as a poet. And he passed away in 2020 in Hungary and I wasn't able to get there. And so this is my memorial. Um, but he lived to be 84. So I'm, I'm starting and ending in Hungary and I'm trying to kind of, you know, just country hop around. Um, so uh, I'm, I've, I'm on maybe my 10th, 12th book now. I'm reading a novel from Lebanon at the moment. Um, so going through the Arabian Peninsula and then I'm going to go down the east coast of Africa and so on and so on. Um, So I'll give you two of my favorites from that list. Um, One actually is the Hungarian novel I started with, um, which is one that people kept asking me if I'd read and I hadn't. It's called The Door by Magda Sabo. Um, It is from the 80s and it is about a woman's uh, very, very strange housekeeper. And that's, that's the, and it's, it's fascinating. Um, and then the other one, uh, another favorite is this Turkish novel called Madonna in a Fur Coat. And the author is Sabahatin Ali. It was published in 1943. Um, and nobody read it. And the author was killed by the government shortly thereafter. And it's about a Turkish man going to Germany and having an, a, a kind of doomed love affair. For the past five years, it has been the best-selling novel in Turkey. And I think it has a lot to do with um, younger readers. There's some really uh, uh, twisting of gender norms in this book. And I think for younger Turkish readers, given the oppressive government they have, they're really drawn to that. It's very, very readable. It's very fast. It's really beautiful. Um, so I recommend both of those very much. And, um, I'm just, I'm going to keep going. It's going to take me a few years, uh, to be clear, to do this all. Cause I have other obligations, but I'm like everyone that I read, I'm like, um, uh, posting about it on social media and in my, I have a Substack newsletter and I have people reading with me and comparing notes and it's been really fun. That's great. You need one of those globe scratch maps. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I'm doing, um, when I post, I'll, I have like, I figured out a way to get a little map online where I can. Uh, click the mouse on the countries and it colors it in, which is very satisfying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That concludes our event for tonight. I'd like to thank our amazing Auslan interpreters, Linda and Leah. Thank you so much. And, of course, a huge thanks to Rebecca. Thank you so much. That was Rachel Brown in conversation with Rebecca Mackay. It was recorded at the Capitol on Saturday the 14th of October 2023. 
Presented in partnership with RMIT Culture as part of Spring Fling. Spring Fling was proudly supported by the Victorian government through Creative Victoria and the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund. A special thanks to official bookseller Readings and accommodation partner The Sofitel. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.